You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens, you can visit our website at citizensbhm.com. All right. Has everyone had one of these before? Yeah? Maybe you've been to a ballpark pretty recently and you had a giant pretzel. Last week. Love that. Love that. And, and have you had this in your home? Raise your hand if this has been in your home before. Ah, interesting. That's like most of my youth. That's like most of my childhood is revolving around how to cook a soft pretzel. Because they say the microwave will work. No, no, no. I could have skipped chemistry in high school with all the experiments I did. Toaster oven, stove, toaster, microwave, lay in the sun. All different ways to try to get a ballpark perfect soft pretzel. They twist, they curve, they're beautiful. They got a little salt on top that just makes it perfect. And I want to talk about pretzels because this passage is a bit of a pretzel. There's some twists, there's some curves. John the Baptist, somehow this guy is doubting things. There's a little salt on top with a big gospel finish. But this whole pretzel is pretty satisfying in the end because it tackles one of the biggest things in Christianity, one of the biggest problems that people tell me they face. Is Justin, what do I do with my doubts? What do I do with the creeping feeling that maybe all this is made up? What do I do with this hard thing that I don't even want to talk about? It makes me ashamed to even think about. What if Jesus isn't who he said he was? What if my salvation isn't real? What if all this is just some weird game? And this passage talks about doubts, but it does it in such an interesting way, circling through so many different stories of people and experience of God to land us in a place that hopefully is deeply satisfying. Look at verse 20 with me. It says, and when the men had come to him, these men from John the Baptist, John the Baptist's followers and friends, and they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you. Why John the Baptist not come? He's in prison saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? What a powerful line. Are you the one? This is still relevant in our culture. Neo, he's the one. LeBron coming out of high school, he was the one. There are songs about the one. Star Wars, the one to bring balance to the force. There is this deep longing in our soul that someone's gonna come and make sense of all of this. Because in some part, even the hardest heart has a humility to go, I can't make sense of it all. I long for someone to do it though. But for John the Baptist, he's not referencing all those things from our culture. He's a good Jewish man. He is referencing who the Old Testament keeps pointing to, saying there is a one who's going to come, and the one who comes will be a Messiah, the person who is God himself to both save people and judge. That there is a one who's been coming through every page of the Old Testament. Are you the one, Jesus? And while this question is the most important question, points for John, it comes with a weird twist. Because of all the people living on earth at the time, John the Baptist should know who Jesus is. He's like the guy who should be the expert that Jesus is the Jesus. Remember, John the Baptist is the literal cousin of Jesus. We learned that in Luke 1. 
that in the womb, that John the Baptist in the womb, Jesus in the womb, when their mothers first meet each other, John starts leaping for joy in the Holy Spirit in the womb of his mother, just knowing Jesus is in the room. When they grow up, John the Baptist is the first one to point out, there's that man, there's the guy, that's the Lamb of God, that's the one that takes away the sin of the world. Jesus shows up and John says, the party is all about him. Everything I've preached, everything I taught is all pointing to this man. And then they even talk. Jesus and John, adults, talk about this. Jesus affirms he's the Messiah. A voice speaks out of heaven as God that says, no, this is my son. This is the guy. The Holy Spirit comes in a form of a dove. What's that look like? I don't know. But John has compelling evidence that Jesus is the guy. He even baptized him. He put his hands on Jesus. But yet, G- but yet John is struggling. John's in prison. Prison isn't easy now. Prison definitely wasn't easy then. We think about prisons as very far off often and and kind of isolated from society. In their culture, it would be the opposite. Prisons were in the very center of town. People would see John the Baptist all the time. They would see like famous John the Baptist who we used to go to the wilderness to see. They now see a guy like sitting behind literal bars in a stone facility, maybe even just chained to the side of a brick. When I was touring Ephesus this summer, I had this opportunity. They just drill a hole through the side of a corner of a building, wrap a chain around it, and then just chain a human to it and just leave them there all day. It's like, oh, it's outside time for the prisoner. Or maybe waiting your turn to fight the gladiators. That's where they had all the holes lined up next to the stadium. So this idea of being in prison was this shameful suffering experience. It wasn't isolated. Instead, everyone kind of got to mock him and be like, look what happened to this guy. He must not really have been the dude. And what it causes for John the Baptist seems he's struggling with all this. He's struggling with doubt. And there's some common causes of doubt in our life and in John's life. One is suffering, physical pain, emotional pain that goes against our expectations in life can cause us to doubt God. Separation, separation from our family, our friends, our community, kind of our ecosystem of faith. You find yourself in a new place and suddenly the doubts can start creeping in. I think both of those are probably true for John. But I also have seen sin can cause doubt as well. I've sat across the, the table and when I was in college ministry with far too many young men who suddenly were doubting the existence of God, not because of philosophy 101, but because new sins, new life, I'm not sure if I need this God anymore, if he's helpful to me. Sin by our choice often puts distance between us and God, so we doubt. But I don't think sin's the issue here. It seems more like suffering and separation. But I want to be really honest, too, and speak a little more widely than John, that doubt is just sometimes how it is. If you've been a Christian long enough, you've probably struggled with doubt at some point. I meet people that go through seasons of doubt that are very difficult. I meet some folks that doubt's kind of a weekly part of the journey, that it's kind of always with them, like a little monster on a chain just looking, kind of like feelings of anxiousness or guilt or different things that Sometimes it's just something they have to live to learn and carry and work through. I meet other Christians who've never struggled with doubt that are kind of confused what we're even talking about. 
It's a mysterious thing. Why some, not others? It's hard to say. But John and Jesus give us a model here that having doubt doesn't mean your faith is broken or you're broken. That having doubt doesn't mean you're spiritually weak. You don't have to let it win and beat you. But rather, Jesus and John give us a model And John the Baptist initiates it by being honest with his friends and disciples. Imagine how hard that would have been. Laying there in prison, be like, can y'all just go ask Jesus if he really is the dude? They're like, what? John, you like banked your whole life in ministry on this. You're in jail because of this. Can you guys, I'm struggling. Will you please just go ask Jesus? I don't know anymore. That's the kind of radical honesty that starts to bring some healing to doubt. He's honest and he goes to his friends and then he uses his friends to go straight to God. And look how God responds to our doubt. What God does is he gives us assurance. Take a look at verse 21. It says, in that hour, Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed. That was a skin disease. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, just like this chapter. The poor have the good news preached to them. Verse 23, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Notice a couple things Jesus doesn't do. Jesus doesn't criticize John the Baptist. He doesn't belittle them. He doesn't say, get it together, man. He doesn't say, cousin, where where are you at? (laughs) Rather, Jesus continues his mission. He's, He's been doing these things. He just keeps doing, being Jesus. He does the miraculous, especially because the miracles are a sign of the Messiah. And then Jesus tells John's friends, his folks, his disciples, to go and describe Jesus's ministry, describe what they've seen back to John, which gives us how God's first assurance works, is when we say, my faith is in doubt, I'm struggling with the bridge between you and me. God says, don't worry so much about the bridge, look at me, look at me and my works. Put your faith in the evidences of who I am. Put your faith in my character. See what I've done on earth. See what I'm doing now. And then the second assurance is look at me, but then look at my words. Look at scripture because what Jesus says back to him is actually a quotation of Isaiah 29 and 35 just mixed. And I have it for you right here. It's a beautiful passage in Isaiah that says about the Messiah. And in that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book. And out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. And and then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Jesus is saying, John, look at me. Look at my words. They're coming true. Base your faith on me, not on your circumstances, not how you feel today. Feelings are important, but we don't let them drive the the car, amen? Don't lock them in the trunk. Put them in like passenger seat, buckle up, all right? 
Don't let the feelings drive the car. And finally, Jesus uses John's community to do the messaging. An assurance that John's not alone. Church, faith inspires faith. You struggle with faith, get around faithful people. Nothing builds my faith like seeing the faith of others in action in the same living God, living by his living scriptures as his living community. Just as John is honest with his friends, now John must allow his friends to be honest back to him. Not cruel, but kind. To say, I've seen it with my eyes. The lame are walking. The deaf are hearing. The mute are singing. I am giving you reason to believe, John, to help him rebuild his faith. But I want to get kind of technical into this situation and exactly probably what John's dealing with. And what John's dealing with at the heart of his doubts is both the suffering and the separation, but there's also just a confusion because John had an expectation of Jesus, the Messiah, that was not being met. John had preached rightly that Jesus was going to bring a greater baptism than water, that he was going to bring a baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire, of both God's healing power of the Holy Spirit and blessing, but also the fire of judgment. And in Jesus's ministry, what we see is Jesus is bringing the miraculous left, right, center. When Jesus is asked who I am, he goes, look at the miraculous, left, right, and center. The Holy Spirit's work of restoring a sinful world back towards against the curse of sin, showing that he's the one who can do it for all people. He's giving evidences of those things, but the fire of judgment isn't around for the most part. Jesus says some intense words. He got some even in this passage. He makes some judgments, but that's not really the first foot forward in the way that maybe John the Baptist thought it was going to come. The judgment part, the fire of Jesus's ministry has not come yet because the judgment in Jesus's story is unimaginable. It was unimaginable by John. It was unimaginable by the disciples. It was unimaginable to the crowds because the judgment of Jesus's ministry, it's not a judgment for enemies. It's a judgment that falls on Jesus for his enemies on the cross. And you can see how confusing John doesn't know that that's the ending coming to the story. He thinks, well, what about all the people who belittled me, all the people who mock you, Jesus, all the religious and political elites who have me in prison right now? Well, those people should be in prison, but look, I'm in prison. This is not how I thought this would go. I am languishing in prison. It's a serious sentence. He will end up being executed at a party. That's how little the religious and political elites cared about him. John will die. This isn't how he thought the story would go, but Jesus' story is a story of loving his enemies. And the judgment falls for our sins on the cross. One day Jesus will return to judge the world, but it's not this visit. It's the next coming. In the face of doubt, your doubts, God offers you to take your eyes off your faith and reset your eyes on God. Your faith will go up and down throughout your life. It's unsteady. Don't put your hope in the strength of your faith. Your doubts will shake your faith. 
But in doubt, reset your gaze on the certainty of Christ, the certainty expressed in the scriptures, a certainty lived in the church. Your lived experiences with God's people should build your heart of faith. It's part of your sanctification or growing more like Jesus. And this will allow you, as you gaze at Jesus, to start to doubt your doubts to start to put those big, nasty monsters on a chain that feel like they're falling around, to start to doubt how valid are they? How valid are my doubts? And to honestly explore them with God. See, Christ isn't shook by our doubts. It shakes us, he's not shook. Instead, he's the anchor in the storm and not even death will break Jesus. And I'm not just arguing schematics here. You might be like, ah, oh, faith, put it in God, put it in faith, whatever. Think of your faith like a rope. Has anyone ever had a job that had like a lot of ropes in it? Dak, what was the job? Bang, look at that. Whew. You only need one. You only need one for that question to work. I've had a weird amount of jobs of ropes, whitewater raft guide, high ropes and structure, climbing guide, all the things. And ropes, they come in every shape and sizes, but you always want a good, strong rope. I've never seen someone come to something like that and be like, you know, this rope looks terrible. Let's do it. You know, people even know nothing about ropes. They're like, oh, let me do a couple pulls here, a little grip here. And ropes, I mean, some are made to be gripped. Some are made to be tied. Some are made to be a little flexible. They come in all shapes and colors. There's a whole world of ropes out there. And most of us look at faith like a rope, always kind of wishing it was in better shape. Most of us look at our faith and go, ah, maybe I'll keep it coiled up on my arm. I don't know if I'll serve at church. I don't know if I'll even be a part of a church. I think, yeah, I'm not really super proud of the rope. They're dismayed over the perceived lack of strength. They want to hide the phrase, hide the shabbiness. Always a bit concerned deep down, wondering what might break this rope. It reminds me of this tiny scene within the Lord of the Rings. And you're like, uh-oh, it's Dork Corner. Buckle up. And in the middle of the second book, Sam and Frodo, they're on a long journey. Two buddies, they're on this journey. They get to a cliff. They realize they cannot get down the cliff without a rope. But then they kind of rediscover that they do have a rope in their back. But when Frodo pulls out the rope and holds the rope in his hands, while it's beautiful, it's too thin. It's too fine. Frodo starts to doubt like, I don't know if we want to use this rope. Sam, in his courage, though he's less athletic and heavier, decides, well, tie the rope on a rock. I'm going over the edge. Good for Sam. He makes it to the bottom. And Frodo discovers that the rope made by a people called elves in the story, this rope has properties and qualities beyond what the eye can see. That actually, no matter the thinness, the rope is very strong because of who made the rope. Our faith is like that. Have you ever thought your faith is actually a gift from God? If he made you and we're sinful and have been lost, it's not up to us to then like build the rope to God. That would not be our faith. Your faith is a gift from God to a people that God loved and made. 
It's a gift. The strength of your faith is about who made the rope and who's hanging on at the other end. You might look at your rope and say, it's puny. It will never hold this thing. It's stretched too far. It's frayed. It's broken. Have you met my kids? They just won't behave. Have you seen what's in my heart? It's gross. Whatever it is for you. The rope is strong because it's God's rope. So take your eyes off the rope. Don't worry about the ups and downs so much, but gaze upon a Jesus who gives you evidence in scripture and a people who will believe beside you. Jesus is telling John, I am enough for your doubts. Your faith will hold not because we are strong, but because God is strong and he is never, ever letting go. And he gives a beautiful promise in verse 23. He says, and blessed is the one who's not offended by me. It's the Lord saying, John, it might be confusing how many people reject me. Like I am not winning a popularity contest by any means. John was more popular in his ministry than Jesus. He was the more well-known figure. So John's even that expectation, like what? If God showed up, he'll blow me out of the water. Nah, man, it's going the other way. John, you may be rejected because of me. You are rejected because of me. And this judgment part might not come in like you think. But the markyrios, that word blessed, that's the Greek word for blessing, that meaning a deep, satisfying happiness of God, that is for those unoffended by Jesus. There is deep blessing to choose to believe and not be offended. Another translation says it this way, keep on believing, John. Don't let suffering or differing expectations get you down. I like that version. Church, doubting with faith leads us to God. Your doubt can be a path to deeper faith if you have a soft heart towards God. We shouldn't celebrate doubt. Our culture loves to celebrate doubt. We shouldn't celebrate doubt, but rather learn to faithfully work out our doubts with God's assurances. It's a process. Now, Jesus wants to clarify things for the crowd around him about John, about God, about what all this means. Look at verse 24. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. And these are the same crowds that got like baptized by this guy and now he's in prison and now he's doubting. So it's a confusing thing that their biggest spiritual leader in their life up to Jesus is having a hard time, is kind of messing with the crowd. They don't know what to think. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing like a king? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing, live in luxury, are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. This is Malachi 3.1. Behold, I send a messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Jesus assures the crowd, John's not a loser because he doubts. John's not a loser because he doubts. In fact, he's the greatest man to ever live. Quite a statement. He tells him, you didn't go out to see a reed in the wind. You didn't go out on a nature hike and happen to find John out there. 
You didn't go out to go see someone fabulous or famous or powerful in the world sense of a king. You went out there to see a prophet and guess what? God delivered because this dude is the prophet. He is the fulfillment of Malachi 3.1 and a bunch of other scriptures that say there's one coming who is going to make a path for the Lord, prepare a people for the Lord. And John the Baptist is that person. He's the second Elijah figure. And he has faithfully done God's work, even if he's struggling now. Even if he's struggling now, you can still trust what happened with you and John the Baptist. And in that moment is real. Because here's the truth, that God uses crooked sticks to make straight lines. That's the hope of my ministry. That's the hope of your life. We're never gonna get it all right and be perfectly consistent in all things. That's not the gospel. It's that Jesus is and uses us anyways. And if God can use John the Baptist mightily and call him the greatest, even though he's having some struggles, that means if you're struggling, God can use you too. That's how Jesus' upside-down kingdom works, that even the least in the kingdom, even those unimpressive to the world, might actually be the greatest or great too. Because the point of Jesus' kingdom isn't our personal greatness, but Jesus' glory. That means unless you, if you've been entrusted with billions of dollars or five dollars, doesn't matter to Jesus. You can be great in the kingdom of God because you serve the king of the kingdom. Verse 29, and this strikes a chord with the crowd. When all the people heard this, the tax collectors too, they declared God just. (laughs) Having been baptized with the baptism of John and the Pharisees and the lawyers, these religious professionals rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. All the folks that had seen their sin, listened to John, repented and been baptized, awaiting the Messiah, start to cheer. They're pumped. They declare God just, that God doesn't, that Jesus doesn't work like the world. He's not ranking everybody. We love rankings, especially in American culture. We can't stop ranking things. BuzzFeed's built a whole life off ranking things. Jesus isn't collecting your spiritual scorecards. Jesus admits sinners to the kingdom. In fact, only those who are sinners may enter the kingdom of God. To say it another way, and where this passage like it starts to twist together like a pretzel, only those who doubt themselves before God can come in. Only those who have doubt in their own works, in their own character, in their own ability to measure up to God, They got a big welcome sign with the Jesus that they know they need. They put their faith in Jesus and they're made right with God or justified before God, where God is both just and the justifier. God makes us both just aware that we're sinners, but then justifies us, makes us right with God. As Romans 1 tells us, he's both just and justifier. But all this leads to a tough truth that some people aren't cheering. Some people are scowling. That those who have rejected John's message, refused baptism, and now missing Jesus the Messiah, Scripture says they have rejected God's purpose for their life. 
That's like Titanic level heavy to say about another person. I want to be so clear. God's plan is to save us. That's the explicit plan in Luke, that he has come to seek and save the lost. But our choices matter. We can choose against following Jesus and miss out on God. Just like choosing to ignore John's message then, people can ignore sermons today. And that's a choice to miss out on Jesus and miss out on God. And Jesus makes a final curve of the pretzel passage here of what are those who reject Jesus like them? What's going on? Why would they see miracles? I mean, maybe hundreds of miracles at this point. Over his life, thousands, three years of miracles, thousands of miracles. Him preaching in the synagogue almost every Sunday, interpreting. I would love how wonderful it have been there to hear every text he preached and all the things. To see his man never sin, never grow, you know, sinfully frustrated. To see a perfect life, to see him changing people's lives and them to ignore and ignore and ignore and just whatever it. For years, John the Baptist had a ministry before that. So maybe five years of ignoring the most miraculous, powerful ministry that God's ever had on the planet. What are we to do with all these folks, especially the religious professionals who in general rejected him? Verse 31, to what then shall I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace calling to one another. We played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. We sang the dirge, that's a funeral song, and you didn't weep. For John the Baptist came eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you said, he has a demon. And the Son of Man, that's Jesus, has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, he's a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of sinners and tax collectors. Yet wisdom is justified by all of his children. Jesus is saying the people of this generation, those who reject Jesus, don't doubt with a soft heart seeking faith. They doubt the work of God, John and Jesus, with a hard heart of unbelief, no matter how John or Jesus acts. They're opposites. One lived as a desert monk. One was a man of the people. They said both of them are illegitimate. They, they're, they're, not, they're not right. And what it reveals is not something bad about John or Jesus, whether they go to jail or get crucified on a cross. It reveals something about their heart, wants nothing to do with God. No matter how the present comes to them, no matter the packaging, they don't really want anything to do with God. They don't want to engage. And Jesus quotes a line about children that's now lost to history. Apparently, they would know what it means there then. We don't really know now. But it seems he's saying choosing to doubt Jesus Choosing to doubt the work of God are like children fighting over what game to play. Are we playing wedding, singing a happy song to dance? Or are we playing funeral, something to weep over? They're choosing bickering over whatever it is, over believing. And if you have no idea about what this is like, children bickering over what game to play, um, I've talked with John Champion and we will sell you tickets to watch my little Tyler and his little Milo fight relentlessly over playing Avengers versus Dinosaurs. Hey, f- cheap tickets. It-, it can happen today, guys. You can, you can really get biblical and watch two kids not get what either of them wants, just like this generation, and fight the whole time. The Pharisees don't take God's messengers seriously, regardless of how they come. 
which falls in line with all the Old Testament, that often it was a minority of the people of God that accepted the prophet, where the majority wanted nothing really to do with them. Ultimately, they doubt the work of God while refusing to doubt themselves and their own need for God. Church, doubting without faith leads us in circles where no answers will ever really satisfy us. In honor of the ongoing concert of Taylor Swift and the endless Instagrams, she has a line in a song that says, if you play stupid games, you win stupid prizes, which is pretty much a modern day of what Jesus is saying about the kids. If you guys want to keep playing games, Pharisees, you're going to win a stupid prize. But God's not actually playing with you. And the stakes are incredibly high. They couldn't be higher. And to Jesus, he simply says, well, I guess we'll see who's right in the end. That's verse 35. Yet wisdom, God's way, is justified or shown by all her children. It's a cryptic challenge to them. Well, I guess we'll see how all this turns out. Notice how kind Jesus is to be truthful, to stay right with him. The next story, he'll be eating in a Pharisee's house. He's not banishing them. He's not excluding them. But he's still being truthful. If you keep playing these stupid games, it's not going to work out for you. We'll see. God, who's about to take on the sin of the world on himself at the cross, says, come in faith, not complaint. That God will meet whoever seeks, will find, whoever asks will be answered. If you're new to church, new to Christianity, and you have lots of doubts, I want to say there's no better place than right here. Stay, give it a couple months, but come with a soft heart that says, hey, I, I want to explore this genuinely. If you're a believer who struggles with doubt, see the kindness of God, that he's not playing hide and seek with you, but rather he's come to seek and save the lost, that he genuinely loves you. He doesn't belittle you in your doubts, but says, come and see my assurances.